Welcome back to The Jacobin Show. I'm your host, Jen Pan, as always. Uh, here, uh, of course, with young Kale Brooks, uh, here by popular demand. Kale, as all of you know, is behind the scenes for every show, but we're bringing him on screen more uh, because you asked for it. Kale, hi. Hey, how's it going? Happy, happy to be here every week. I'm here every week. But now I'm even happier to be here every week. Yeah, now now you're like an embodied presence uh, instead of just kind of this spectral yeah. uh, ghost floating behind the scenes. Yeah, this is we have just moved from Hegel to Marx, folks. This right, is... yeah, <laughs> right, yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, well, on that note, Kale, uh, what, what's on your mind this week? There's, there's a lot going on. Uh, this is, I think, probably... We can all agree a bad week. Um, this was not a good week. Uh, and we're going to talk about that, I think, throughout the show. And uh, I'll, I, I won't I'll let you introduce the rest of it. Uh, but there will be a, a nice uh, sampling of all of the terrible things that have happened this week. Um, and maybe hopefully some optimism. Yeah. Maybe. Uh, at the point of recording this right now, we don't know if there will be. But there might be. There so, might be. We're going to hope that there is, and uh, you can hope along with us. Um, obviously, the the biggest news, maybe um, in a long time, is the Supreme Court's decision to overrule uh, or to get rid of Roe v. Wade, the precedent set almost 50 years ago um, that allowed some form of abortion to be legal, to at least not be uh, criminally punished in this country. Mm -hmm. um, and... Obviously, for many of you out there, you probably already are very much aware that that actual status has not been equal. It's been uneven across the country for a long time um, and is only going to become far more unequal now um, as something probably like more than half of the, uh, the country, more than half of the states in the country uh, are, are basically states where you cannot get an abortion. Um, so... This is um, one of the things that has been brought up in the context of this. Um, there's many conversations. There's many good conversations you should listen to. Um, ben Burgess did an interview not too long ago with Lillian Securchia. It's a good interview. I think she lays out a lot of the kind of the socialist case for how to deal with um, mm -hmm. this situation and what we need to do about it. Um, but one thing I think that has come up in the context of this is the question of Republican and right wing overstep. Are they, has the right wing actually gone too, too far? far. In this? Um, which obviously yes, but the, insofar as like, it's horrific for, you know, ordinary people's lives. Like this is going to be mm -hmm. massively damaging and, and painful and destructive. Right. Um, and that's among a long list of things that the right has done for kind of the entire history of the right. Um, but the question of right-wing overreach right now has to do with kind of within the cultural zeitgeist of America, of what is acceptable politics. Is this an overreach? And will and therefore, if it's an overreach, will there be some kind of repercussions or right. rebound? Um, right. I think is what's implied when people say overreach. Yeah. Um, 
Uh, I think I, I, I want to quickly say that the thing that kind of got me thinking about this subject, and by the way, I don't know what the answer is, uh, but I want to throw two tweets up here just to look at. Uh, I, I saw a tweet by Ross Barkin, who has been on the show before. He wrote, we are seeing a right wing cultural overreach. Average voters want abortion legal and restrictions placed on firearms. Uh, he's absolutely right about that. A, a kind of similar tweet uh, was from Matt Stoller, who writes, The right has been ascendant in the culture war for the last few years for a variety of reasons, largely because they seemed closer to normies. With guns for all and the creepiness of arresting women who miscarry, that dynamic will change. Again, I think that both of them are right, and they're both sort of expressing a similar kind of sentiment, which is that, uh, you know, the, the average voter... Um, on abortion and gun rights is not close to what the hard fringe of the Republicans are now pushing and what they will probably do post row. Um, now that said, you know, that brings up a number of other issues that you kind of alluded to, which is that uh, does, does it matter, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's not just does it matter, but like what can be done? Like, mm-hmm. will something happen? Right. Is, if there is, if this is an overreach, then. An overreach, again, meaning that there's going to be some kind of response. And obviously there has been. You probably mm-hmm. have been to some of the protests that have occurred over the last few days, The last, uh, by the time this comes out, the past week. Um, and I imagine, you know, protests are going to continue as they have before this. Um, and protests matter uh, in some sense. And I think it's right. important. it's important to think about to what extent they matter. But I do think it, it matters insofar as... Uh, it does demonstrate kind of popular support for an mm-hmm. issue where mm-hmm. we don't have any kind of, uh, you know, uh, large single um, uh, votes as a country. We don't have referendums right. um, on these things. Uh, and, so, and so in absence of like actual democratic, uh, you know, procedures, we have people showing up and demonstrating. And that in and of itself doesn't, bring about change normally. Um, there's been many, many, many protests, and there's only a few that have really actually led to a, an immediate political shift or political change. Um, but I do think it's it's significant for kind of calling together political uh, energy and ambitions, and, and it does provide some focus. Um, yeah. But th- there's, uh, but I, I think it's just anyone who's been to that, you know, one of these protests or any of the other protests, like the many, many protests, whether it has to do with with guns or with right. uh, Trump or yeah. with any number of things in the last few years. Socialists have been to many, many more <laughs> and because we love to throw a protest. Yeah. Uh, and uh, the answer is that it doesn't immediately do anything, typically. Um, and that's yeah, discouraging. I mean, right, right. And the, the kind of like larger problem, which again is very discouraging is something that we talked about when we were talking about um, guns a few weeks ago, which is that obviously our political system is set up to not only enable, but basically entrench minoritarian rule, which is how the Republicans are able to like skate by or are able to ram through so many unpopular policies. Uh, And also the reason why we can't actually enact any of the policies that are popular, such as say Medicare for all. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, that's the I mean, it it just kind of in some ways, it's a very banal fact. But just Mm -hmm. the fact that our society is deeply undemocratic at the level of you actually have the ability to express your political uh, opinions, your political interests in any kind of real way in any like concerted way. So like, 
if you're in a union, you have that opportunity because you actually have a democratic say within the union. Um, when you vote for a president, like, yes, you have the say to vote for that president. Um, but the actual process by which, like, you got to that, like, we as a country got to the place where there's two people on the ballot in, in and of itself is a fairly undemocratic and, you know, highly kind of, uh, bureaucratic process that's largely determined by rich people and people with power. And that's for most things overwhelmingly the rich and the powerful kind of set the terms and uh, we don't really have a say. Um, And so I guess, I guess maybe like a follow-up question is, do you think that this could actually change the midterms in any way, which as we've talked about many times before has been looking quite bad for the Democrats uh, because something that I was thinking about and and um, I, I saw a like article in, I think, the Associated Press this morning that was basically that basically was like over a million people over the course of this year switched from being Democrats to being Republicans. Uh, and I think we've talked about this phenomenon on the show before because, you know, um, that shift has been happening for a while or it's been especially pronounced over the last year. And uh uh, what was interesting about this AP article was that it pointed out that a lot of the this activity has been happening uh, in suburban, like educated areas, right? So mm-hmm. these were the people who had kind of, uh, in theory, been so disgusted by Trump that they had flipped to Biden. Um, and and I think over the last year, we've been seeing them slowly start to peel back over to the Republicans. So I mean, I guess the question is like. Could this sort of like suburban ring of voters be so disgusted by Republican overreach that they flip back again? Um, I mean, I I want your take on this, too. But mm-hmm. I mean, I I don't know. It's hard to say just because like so you take that into account what you just said, plus, mm-hmm. you know, the Supreme Court ruling. And mm-hmm. there's like a lot of mishmash of like counteracting, you know, pressures and forces. And, um, you know, when we think of like the 2020 election uh, where Biden won pretty handily, uh, mm-hmm. with like, obviously with the electoral, uh, college vote, but like a pretty massive, uh, popular vote, right. just tons of people coming out. Um, it was very clear, like what was at stake in that election and, uh, the choice between kind of who, which, you know, the, the current administration or a possible different administration dealing with COVID, um, and, uh, and just kind of like the legacy of the, the Trump years. And mm-hmm. I think it's, you know, and there's obviously like, there are material aspects to the election, but like, they those not aren't front and center for a lot of that, unfortunately. Um, but so I think like, in that case, like, yeah, you do get like this massive kind of like, rise of suburbia, mm-hmm. kind of like pulling the Democrats back into power barely. Um, but I think with abortion, it's tough, because like most of the people that it affects are younger people. Um, it's like younger voters and younger voters don't come out to the, uh, to vote as often. Um, and a lot of that has to do with voter disenfranchisement that has to do with like, it's difficult to get off work. Um, it's difficult to, um, it's just all these barriers that are, that are put in place and make it more difficult for young people to vote. Yeah. And so I don't, I mean, it, you know, predictions kind of worthless, but, yeah. um, so I'm I'm kind of skeptical, I guess. Like, there's nothing that immediately says to me that there's going to be, that this is going to counteract all of the other things that right. have been yeah. working against Democrats. Right. I'm, I'm inclined to agree with you. And I just, I would also add that, like, 
The suburban voter is the constituency that Democrats have been, I think, very stupidly chasing for a really long time. And I like like it's the demographic that I think uh, Buttigieg famously calls like future former Republicans. Right. Mm. And I I said that in a kind of Trump voice. I don't know why. Um, Anyway, because uh, it's Buttigieg. Buttigieg is the Trump legacy. He's just like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, well, on that, you know, on that subject, I was just when I was reading this, I was thinking about how like the commentariat like likes to talk, you know, ad nauseum about the white working class kind of like breaking off from the Democrats or abandoning the Democrats. And it just Mm -hmm. occurred to me that like it took basically 40 years of the Democrats just like overtly spitting in the face of the white working class for the white working class to be like, I guess we don't vote for Democrats anymore. But the suburban voters that that mainstream Democrats are always chasing change their fucking minds every election season, it seems, you know, based on, I don't know, some sort of like weird alchemy of like property taxes plus uh, like their feelings on public schools, like in that very moment, plus like, I don't know, like insert whatever like issue is in the air. So I like... Could are, could that ring of suburban, like Republican, Democrat, former, future, whatever, uh, like help Democrats this midterm? Maybe. And I hope they do. But that is not a that is not a reliable part of the coalition. Yeah. I mean, that's the the fickle, anxiety ridden middle class people. Like yeah. in some ways, that makes sense that that's who you go after every election cycle, because that's probably the easiest person to pick up as opposed to like someone who is completely depoliticized and says right, like, right. Yeah. Right. We, yeah. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think that's just the, like for, for socialists, obviously like the, the overriding issue of our time um, remains the, the massive depolitization of, yeah. of most people. And I know Jen, you're going to talk about this in a little bit. So stay tuned for that. Um, but just the fact that like, we all become kind of resigned to like just the horribleness of, of life. Um, you know, it's like all the more reason why, and not just life, but like, uh, it's not life. It's like capitalism. It's the particular, it's the life we are stuck in right now. Um, that doesn't have to be the life of the future, but, um, you know, this is just like all the more reason why we need to be building, uh, solidaristic institutions on the left that like, there's, there's no, better time than to try to like build up the power of unions right now. Um, you know, would love a left party in this country and hopefully one day we'll get that. Um, but you know, so do, do yeah, until then do the groundwork now if you can, but like for the most part, I think getting people into unions would be useful. Um, and, uh, and then, and then hopefully like it'll fix all these other horrible, stupid, like culture war issues that we're constantly Mm -hmm. like, getting upset over that, like, drive us all nuts that, yeah. like, um, you know, so that's the, that's, the, I think, the hope um, that, like, unfortunately, the sober answer, like, the faster you get this through your brain, the better you'll feel about living in a miserable fucking country, which is that the hope is the labor movement. And we're not going to get that before the, uh, the midterms. So right, right. probably going to be bad. And you should do what you can to, like, build a better future by, like, empowering labor. Sorry. That's, that's what it is. 
All right. Well, on that note, um, you had mentioned that I'll be making some comments about the depoliticization of basically everybody in a little bit. Uh, also want to mention that uh, I interviewed uh, Gary Gerstel. He is the author of a new book called The Rise and Fall of the Neoliberal Order. Really enjoyed my conversation with him. So stay tuned for that. Uh, so, yeah, let's let's get to the rest of the show. Well, I am now here with the one and only Felix Biederman to talk about the jewel ban. Uh, first, I feel like I should disclose that I am a cigarette Luddite. I have never owned a jewel in my life. Uh, in my mind, the pinnacle of nicotine technology is still like the camel crush. Uh, by the way, regular cigs are under attack too, and maybe we can talk about that. Uh, but first, Felix, your thoughts on the pending jewel ban at a time when gas is like $8 a gallon in California. We obviously have no national health care or sick leave. And of course, uh, in half the country now, the only way to get an abortion is to like beg your boss at Citibank to let you put your hundreds of miles of travel to a different state on the company credit card. Yeah. Um, well, I, in my opinion, um, the jewel ban is not, you know, it's not despite all those things. I think it's because of all those things. Yeah. Uh, I think you're like me and you spent a great deal of your life in very blue cities inside very blue states. And since the nine, well, really since the seventies, uh, the American mayor has been kind of hamstrung in what they're able to do. Similar with the city council, there are some things they can do. They don't have to be quite as shitty as they are now. Mm -hmm. But at least since Ford to New York dropped dead, the American uh, municipal power has not been what we would like it to be. Yeah, but you've got to look busy, right? And if you've lived in a blue city, like either of us have, and I'm sure a lot of people listening have. Uh, you, um, you've experienced Democrat look busyism, right? You've, you've had something you've, you enjoy, you think is fun. You've had it banned for seemingly no reason. No one died because of it. No one's life was saved because it was banned. No one's life got better after it disappeared, but because there were all these problems they couldn't, they, they, they couldn't solve either because of limits on their spending or limits on their legal power. Uh, something you like was taken away. Now we're witnessing it on a federal level. What's interesting about the jewel ban, though, is remember how this was Melania Trump's big thing? There's yeah. there's kind of like a bipartisan ring to this one. Well, that, that's I mean, you know, Donald Trump was a big city Democrat for uh, his very 80 percent of his life. And yeah. he showed some of that. He showed some of that uh, that uh, cunning and poise mm -hmm. in 2018 when he was. You know, most of his agenda had gotten uh, railroaded and uh, he didn't really give a shit. I mean, they did do that tax cut, but Obama repealing Obamacare, that was dead in the water. Um, I don't think the Supreme Court would have repealed Roe v. Wade during his presidency. Mm -hmm. And it's like, OK, well, I, I got to do something. OK, the, this big company is trying to get kids to vape. OK, well, I'm going to stop it. And of course... You know, he he took the strange step of banning the good flavors, whereas <laughs> Biden is just also a strange step, getting rid of it entirely, which is, I, I don't know, equally weird to me because, yeah. uh, you know, Jewel isn't the only game in town. Right. 
But actually, it's funny. You know. I like. I mean, you know, I said earlier that like I don't know anything about jewels, so like I had to do a little research to like figure out what the current state of like the vape market is. And apparently, the teens who are the demographic that everybody is so concerned about when it comes to jewel have just like moved on to a different nicotine product completely. And honestly, like I, I read about this late last night, so I was like a little bit tired, and I'm probably misrepresenting it a little bit. But it kind of sounded like they're just like something was invented that's basically just a cigarette <laughs> like it was like here's a new disposable uh nicotine packet that comes in a tube and you like ignite the end i don't know i'm like lying about the last part a little bit but yeah, like, yeah. It, it was like they just invented a cigarette again um anyway the point being that the teens are onto something new now <sighs> i know what you're talking about it's yeah. the uh it's the puff bar the puff bar yeah what a- yeah what is that do you have one with you right now no i'm i'm uh, i i don't use um you know, you you said you're a cigarette luddite. I still would be if I didn't stop having balconies. Yeah. The only reason I got started on e- I got started on Jewel, and then I moved on to uh, a more uh, esoteric product once the Jewel the good flavors were banned. Yeah. Um. You know, just when I stopped having balconies, I was like, okay, well, I'm not going to start smoking inside. But yeah. Yeah. It. I mean. Um. I don't. I, I'm. I, I don't recommend people do one or the other. I mean, this is probably very bad for you. And cigarettes have things that are bad for you about them. They have things that are good for you about them. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But. Uh, um, well, that's the thing that's most frustrating about all of this is like I don't want to be like. I don't want to be like I am defending the corporation Jewel, let alone right. big tobacco. You know. Right. Right. It's more of a philosophical thing for me. Yeah. But. Uh, yeah. So I, Jewel, the reason the Jewel was such a hit was because it used nicotine salt. Mm-hmm. Nic- nicotine salt versus e-juice. E-juice is the thing that uh, was mostly in vapes prior to about, I'd say about 2014, 2013. Uh, e-juice is typically very, very much lower in nicotine concentration. It mm-hmm. doesn't have that throat hit. You know how when you hit the jewel, it hurts your throat in the same way that a cigarette does? I mean, and no, that's... no, I don't know. Because like oh. I said, <laughs> I'm not a jewel user, but I'll take your word for it. You never hit one, though? You never, like, just out of curiosity? You know, maybe out of, maybe out of curiosity, but I remember nothing about the experience other than that it probably just made me want a regular cigarette. <laughs> if you're if you're dedicated to smoking, yeah. I don't think it's going to – if you have no intents of quitting, I don't think it's going to bring you over. Yeah. But uh, well, listen, so speaking of quitting, though, the other thing is that the Biden administration is like basically like we're going to make a decaf cigarette now. Did you see that one? That that, was sort of in tandem with the jewel ban. Yeah, that I mean, all of it is very stupid to me. Yeah, because, okay, if you want people to stop smoking, jewel and in general, nicotine salts are a great transitory thing Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because they they deliver a similar amount of nicotine. They hit your throat. Mm -hmm. It's really the physical feeling is what you have to replicate it's i tried vaping in 2013 to get off of cigarettes and An early it, adopter yeah and it wasn't i it didn't have the same feeling and i yeah. i you know it didn't hit my throat in the same way i kept smoking until jewel and now i quit jewel i quit nicotine salts and i like get a much lower nicotine concentration through like this now but it was you know it was a gradual thing over years um by both limiting, you know, eliminating Juul, limiting the American e-cig market, and then bringing down the amount of nicotine in American cigarettes, 
what you're going to do is just make make people consume more. I mean, you know, the thinking in the first place of light cigarettes was, oh, there's going to be less toxic payload per drag in a cigarette if we make the filters longer. Well, it turned out people just take longer drags. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, and a similar thing is going to happen here. People will probably just smoke more cigarettes and they'll buy more packs. They'll go yeah. from smoking 15 a day to 25 a day. Yeah, I I want to go back to your earlier comments on this kind of like uh like performative democratic uh mayor do something ism because I think that you're totally right about it, but at the same time I, it it got me thinking about how the result of that do something ism is just that everybody will be pissed at them. So like, what is the political utility in the end? Uh, I I mean like. You know, I I kind of feel like the problem with uh, this sort of style of limiting like a consumer good is that we all know that people who when you like take away something that they enjoy, they're just going to find something else that's just as bad for them, if not a little bit worse. Right. Like yeah. people are just really good about finding ways to to have a good time or at the very least, like feel less wretched about life for two seconds. So I don't know. Yeah, no, I mean, they'll either find, like, a nicotine delivery system that has um, very little regulation because it's invisible to the federal mm-hmm. government for the time being, mm-hmm. or, you know, go back to cigarettes or go to dipping or go to something like that. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I, I agree with you that it's very short-sighted and it's very stupid, and I – for the life of me, I don't know why there's no one around Biden or no one around any of these people who's going – you know, you're pissing people off. Yeah. yeah. People are either going to not notice this or the people that do notice this, they're going to get even more pissed off at you. And, um, <clears throat> you know, I, I, I said that I have a philosophical objection to all this. And I, I think we probably agree on this. It's that you can't be you, you, you in America. The ethos for so many things is you're on your own, right? Yeah. Yeah. Go find your own fucking healthcare plan. Um, Go find, <clears throat> go find your own income. Go find your own job. Go find your own housing. Mm-hmm. Figure it the fuck out. There are barely any rules around any of this. Um, someone can screw you out of your retirement. There are more ways to get screwed and fooled in this country than any other uh, first world nation on earth. But when it comes to these individual behavioral choices, we're highly limited. And it's yeah. not just it's not just smoking or e-cigs or things like that. We have more limitations in more things than any other place. Yeah. You know, the the uh Obama DEA, um I we've we've done an episode about it. We've we've turned we've termed it um opiate whack a mole, where they right. saw the high overdose rates in America mm-hmm. and they thought, Okay, we're gonna make individual opiates illegal on a right. two week warning basis and what a fucking shock. People switch to heroin, the market right. cannot C- cannot fit that that demand for heroin. People take bathtub fent and die in even larger numbers. You right. see the story repeated a billion times over and over and over again. Anything that anything that could take your mind off is victim to the highest degree of regulation in both Democratic and Republican administrations for different yeah. reasons, but usually yeah. around the same rationale. We have to look busy. Where, but anything <clears throat> that should be a right that you have as a human, there are no rules around it. Right. No yeah. one's making sure you can get it. Yeah. 
I mean, on the subject of the opioid crisis, I think that's like the perfect example because we at this point obviously have like reams of evidence and studies that show that these so-called deaths of despair, like opioid overdoses, deaths from, you know, alcohol related diseases, obviously like deaths related to smoking or whatever are all connected to economic immiseration. And that is the thing to solve. Like if you actually want to stop those deaths of despair, not limiting I don't know, individual opioids or like jewels or whatever. Yeah, it the, that <clears throat> drives me insane. I, I know. Mean, <laughs> that if you look at the UK and the UK, I don't consider that any bastion of personal liberty <laughs> right. by any means. I mean, there are things about America still um, that I think are – there are individually enshrined rights that I think are cool that we have here that they don't necessarily have over there sort of things in, in, in speech and other things. But – over there, they do not have the same uh, prohibition type of thinking with like mm-hmm. mind altering chemicals as yeah. much as we do here. They don't play the game of opiate whack a mole. Mm-hmm. As far as I know, in my experience being there, they do have. There are some uh, UK rules on vapes and uh, nicotine and e juice, but they've sort of been the same for a while. They haven't changed mm-hmm. it up, and the NHS will actually give you an e cig to get you off. Oh uh, yeah. Yeah, to get you off smoking. Yeah. And, you know, okay, well, are the overdoses higher? Are more or are, are more people dying of uh, of similar condi- heart conditions, cancer? Are they dying these same deaths of despair over there as they are here? And the UK is no worker's paradise, but they just have these basic things that are guaranteed to them that anyone should get in any of these countries. Yeah, yeah. But you would you – would, Listening to the Michael Bloombergs and, you know, the Trumps and the Bidens, you would figure that it's just they would run out of space to bury people there. But no, that's that's not the case. It's not the case in any of these countries. Yeah. All right. Well, maybe to wrap up on a slightly lighter note, uh, Felix, what do you think is the future of uh, nicotine consumption post all of these bans? And I just want to say when I was in college, I knew this guy who smoked a pipe. Uh, and it was, and it was so pretentious, but he was like, he was, so he was like, I can't do it that much. And I can't really do it in public because it like makes me look like such a fucking asshole, but the pipe tobacco (laughs) really does taste and smell better than any other tobacco like that has ever been invented. And whenever he would smoke the pipe, like, you know, it was like the opposite of how people react to like the smell of a cigarette or a cigar. Like people would like, (laughs) they would like perk up a little bit and they'd be like, what is that? Like, that smells really good. So just putting that out there for the teens, I Nick Nick uh, yeah. Mullen did that. He was a pipe smoker Wait, for a while. What? Yeah, no, he was. He was. It got him off cigarettes. Um, and he. What he, is the status of that pipe now? I don't think he still does it. I, I, I so I think it worked. I think it weaned him off of it. Okay, all right. Yeah, doctors take note. Yeah, but I could. You know, now that you mention it, that is the type of thing that I could see gaining currency with. Uh, 18 to 22 year olds yeah <laughs> i could see if the if the right uh telegenic tiktok star does it i mean they can they can make it they can make it seem like anything is a cool personal choice to make right but do you, um, do you, do you kind of want to try one of those like decaf zero nicotine cigarettes i i'm like very curious i want to see what it's like i want to see, what it's, see like. what it's like do you remember um god um i mean they were I think they were put on and off the market before either of us were born, but there was a RJR Nabisco 
product that was it was a smokelet a smokeless cigarette called Premier. And maybe they'll try that again. Yeah, yeah. It was was horrible. No one liked it. This was something that was manufactured by the cigarette companies. Yeah, no, RJR Nabisco basically put its entire future in because this was like the, I think, early 80s. And it was like, okay, now people are realizing that smoking's bad. bad. What if we take this smoke out? Right, right. And yeah, they had to take a company private after. What I no, I can't I can't even imagine. What was it? Just like a plastic tube. Kind of. Yeah. It like it looked like well, it kind of looked like a camel crush. And there were yeah, beads right. in there. It was like to be, it so apparently there was like a coating that would make it so the tobacco was superheated but not on fire. Mm-hmm. And you would get fumes, but not like Sounds a little vape-like. It was kind of, it was a proto-vape. It was a a proto-vape. proto-vape, yeah. So maybe we might, I mean, with improved technology, we might get something like that. Something that is legally not a vape nor a cigarette. All right. Well, you heard it here first. Pipes are coming back, as are uh, proto-vapes. Felix, good to see you. Thanks for your time. My pleasure. Uh, let's talk again soon. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. All right, so I'll be back in a minute with my comments on why people are continuing to drop out of the political process. But first, a quick message from our sponsor, Verso Books. Join the Verso Book Club and get every new ebook that Verso publishes each month, as well as one to three books in the mail if you choose a print subscription. All Verso Book Club members also get 50% off everything on the website for as long as you're a subscriber. Join in June and get your first month free. This month's selections are Internet for the People, The Fight for Our Digital Freedom by Ben Tarnoff, A Radical Manifesto for Fixing the Internet by Deprivatizing It, Bad Gays, A Homosexual History by Hugh Lemmy and Ben Miller, a historical biography based on the hugely popular podcast series, Humanitarian Borders, Unequal Mobility and Saving Lives by Polly Pallister Wilkins, An Interrogation of the Politics of Humanitarian Responses to Border Violence and Unequal Mobility, The Future is Degrowth, A Guide to a World Beyond Capitalism, A Manifesto to arguing against the ideology of growth and without apology the abortion struggle now by jenny brown an indispensable guide to building a fighting feminist movement for reproductive freedom become a member today at versobooks.com we hear over and over again that we're living at a time of extreme political polarization A growing number of commentators have even speculated that thanks to the extreme animosity between Democrats and Republicans these days, we might be teetering on the brink of a second civil war. And of course, in the wake of events like the Supreme Court's overturning of Roe v. Wade last week, the divisions between blue and red states can seem even starker than ever. However, as fractious as these partisan divisions are, there's an even larger problem in American politics than bad blood between Democrats and Republicans, and it's that more and more people are just dropping out of the political process entirely. The first thing to keep in mind is that way, way fewer people than you might think are following politics at all. In fact, a few years ago, a team of researchers conducted an in-depth study and found that the overwhelming majority of Americans are not what you would call political junkies. According to their findings, only 15 to 20 percent of Americans follow politics closely, while up to 85 percent of Americans follow politics casually or not at all. On top of that, the researchers also found that self-professed political junkies had very different priorities than the segment of the population that said they didn't follow politics closely. For instance, as the authors write, Quote, Democrats and Republicans who don't follow politics closely believe that low hourly wages are one of the most important problems facing the country. But for hard partisans, the issue barely registers. 
So in other words, there are some serious divides between political junkies, aka people who are constantly commenting on and posting about the news, or watching political YouTube shows, or making political YouTube shows, and everyone else, broadly speaking. What's interesting is that the people who are least plugged into the ongoing political stew nevertheless still have very real concerns about things like wages that politics are theoretically designed to address. That tracks with a number of other studies that show that non-voters paradoxically tend to want more government intervention than the people who regularly turn out to vote. These studies find that non-voters are more supportive than regular voters of measures like minimum wage increases and increased government spending on healthcare, public education, and social safety net benefits. To look at just one example, this study out of California finds that compared to residents who vote regularly, California residents who don't vote say they prefer a bigger government, more spending on public services, and more government action to reduce inequality. So what exactly explains the fact that these people are non-voters? A political junkie might ask, if people who don't vote tend to want more government action to solve problems like economic inequality, why don't they get involved in politics? Well, the unfortunate reality, of course, is that average people have very little influence on politics, even when they do try to express their political preferences. Back in 2014, the political scientists Martin Gillens and Benjamin Page were in fact able to quantify just how little power most Americans have on policymaking, despite living in an ostensible democracy. They conducted a landmark study where they looked at a decade of data to measure policymakers' responsiveness to different groups, and what they found is that legislators are so disproportionately responsive to the policy preferences of economic elites and business lobbyists that the influence of the average citizen on policymaking was essentially zero. Gillens and Page write, Even big majorities, 60 to 80% of Americans, get the policy changes they want only about 40% of the time. This has real consequences. Millions of Americans are denied government help with jobs, incomes, health care, or retirement pensions. They do not get action against climate change or stricter regulation of the financial sector or a tax system that asks the wealthy to pay a fair share. On all these issues, wealthy Americans tend to want very different things than average Americans do, and the wealthy usually win. Similarly, in 2018, another group of researchers looked at the disconnect between members of Congress and their constituents and found that congressional members of both parties and their top aides pretty consistently misjudge what their constituents even want. To cite just a few examples, representatives drastically underestimated the public's support for things like background checks on gun sales. They also underestimated how much their constituents supported raising the minimum wage and government spending on infrastructure. So when you have a political system that's wildly out of touch with what most working people want, but at the same time also extremely responsive to what rich people want, it's not really a huge shock that more and more people are dropping out of the political process. What this all means, at least to me, is that just pleading with or even berating people to wake up or to get out and vote, which is what Democratic leaders and commentators perpetually do after every political setback or Republican win, probably isn't going to do much over the long term. Likewise, I don't think that Democratic politicians constantly invoking a state of emergency by insisting that fascism is at the gates or that democracy is on the brink of collapse or that we're about to descend into a new Jim Crow era is going to generate the voter turnout they seem to hope it will. In fact, what's probably more likely is that over-the-top doomsday rhetoric from both parties will only further turn off the people that are already disengaging from politics. 
On the other hand, the fact that so many of the same people who say they don't follow politics or who don't regularly vote have also indicated that they are concerned about things like low wages and affordable health care suggests that there is a way forward. The solution to re-engaging people who have dropped out of politics, in my opinion, isn't just more awareness raising or even fighting things like voter suppression or big money in politics, as important as all of those things are. It's broad-based social programs like Medicare for All, nationwide parental leave and universal childcare, and raising the minimum wage. We all know that these types of programs will immediately help working people who have been hit hard by decades of pro-capitalist policies that have effectively transferred wealth from workers to the upper class. But I suspect these programs would also go a long way in helping to break the current feedback loop where the political system doesn't work or respond to the preferences of average people, so they increasingly disengage, which of course then means that elites have even more influence on politics because they're overrepresented at the polls. In other words, if people who want stronger safety net programs, aka current non-voters, actually see the political system responding to their concerns, they'll be more inclined to participate in politics in the future. Now, obviously, this isn't something that can just happen overnight. After all, these are the same programs that the capitalist class and the political elite consistently fight tooth and nail. But it's just another reason why those of us who are currently politically active should continue to prioritize a program of serious government intervention on inequality and a massive New Deal-style expansion of public goods, as hard as it'll be to actually win those things. To put it another way, it won't just be good for workers. In the end, it could even be good for democracy. All right, so I'm now here with Professor Gary Gerstel. He is the Paul Mellon Professor of American History at the University of Cambridge, also the author of many books, including Liberty and Coercion, American Crucible, and of course, his latest, which we'll be talking to him about today, The Rise and Fall of the Neoliberal Order, America and the World in the Free Market Era. Professor Gerstel, great to have you on. It's nice for you to have me. Thank you. So uh, I want to start with literally just the title of your book, The Rise and Fall of the Neoliberal Order. Uh, Now, you don't call it The Rise and Fall of Neoliberalism. You don't call it The Rise and Fall of the Neoliberal Era. And this may kind of sound like splitting hairs a bit, but obviously what I'm getting at is you mean something very specific when you talk about a political order, right? So um, maybe just to start, what distinguishes a political order from, say, a political movement or just any other political ideology? And um, what have the major political orders in the U.S. been? Well, I, I first introduced uh, the concept political order about 33 or 34 years ago uh, with the co-author of mine, Steve Fraser, when we did a book called The Rise and Fall of the New Deal Order. And it's an idea that was uh, meant to help uh, people who study the United States uh deflect their focus somewhat from what occupies so much of attention in terms of political history and political science in the United States. And that is the four year election cycle for presidents, the two year cycle for House of Representatives, six year cycle for the Senate. Uh, It's right that the, the focus is on these short election cycles because they matter, but not everything can be comprehended within those short two, four, and six-year intervals. And political order is meant to um, bring into focus longer sways in American politics. Um, And political order is a constellation of institutions, 
backed by a political party involving uh, networks of policymakers and uh, people who seek to define the good life in America. Uh, a political order is uh, a structure in politics that allows uh, a movement to gain authority and power uh, over a long period of time. So much authority and power that it ultimately compels the opposition party to play by its rules. So when Steve Fraser and I wrote about the New Deal order, which rose in the 1930s and 40s and fell in the 1960s and 1970s, a key test for a political order is when it can compel the antagonistic party, in this case, the Republican Party, to play by Democratic Party rules. In other words, certain core beliefs become so deeply established, so hegemonic, that they define the playing field. And thus, when a Republican president was elected for the first time in 20 years in 1952, the big question was, would he take apart the New Deal? And he did not. He preserved the core pillars, the core elements of the New Deal, and that included rights for labor, Mm-hmm. Social Security, a progressive income tax that exceeded 90% of a Republican Party president signed off on a deal like that today. He'd be put on the first boat to somewhere outside the Western Hemisphere. Uh, what is it that um, compels an opposition party to play by the terms of the dominant party? Uh, and the answer to that is uh, a political order. A, a set of institutions, ideologies, networks that become so powerful and so compelling that they define, in a way, the entire terrain of American politics. And I'm, what I mean by the entire terrain of American politics, it's not that everyone in America has to speak that language. But if you want to get elected, if you want to have political influence within the dominant structure of uh, politics in the United States, that's what you have to do. The uh, neoliberal order arose with the Republican Party in the 1970s and 80s. And this became an order, I argue, when when Bill Clinton in the 1990s during his presidency brought the Democratic Party mm-hmm. on board with what was a Republican political order. And and uh, what is striking about the Clinton era and the, and the Clinton presidency is the degree to which uh, the freeing of markets from public regulation the commitment to deregulation, the celebration of globalization, free markets everywhere. Arguably, Clinton did more to facilitate that than Reagan himself had done. And that indicates uh, to me that a political movement, what had been a neoliberal political movement, had established itself as an order Mm -hmm. and ability to define the terrain of American politics. We are living through what I argue is the end of the uh, neoliberal order. That does not mean that ideas of neoliberalism end. Uh, Social Security is still around. The New Deal order is not. There will be elements of neoliberal thinking that continue to characterize American life for a long period of time. But the ability of uh, a uh, an order to compel acquiescence, to, to compel support, to define the parameters of American politics, uh, that is no longer the case. Right. Uh, Jacobin would not have the influence it it has if this had begun in 1995 or 
1996. Bernie Sanders was a completely irrelevant player in American politics in the 1990s and first decade of the 21st century. Mm -hmm. And suddenly his ideas matter a great deal. Trump is a wrecker of the neoliberal order. He, too, was unimaginable as president in the 1990s. The fact that the uh, voices once consigned strictly to the periphery are now considered mainstream is is one sign that the authority that a political order once commanded is breaking up. So I want to stay on this question, actually, of sort of moving from the fringe or the margins to the center, um, because that's obviously part of the, the story of the rise of neoliberalism as well. And I think that, you know, lots of people are sort of familiar with thinkers like Milton Friedman and institutions like the Mont Pelerin Society as kind of the early ideological architects of neoliberalism. But obviously, as you point out in your book, those uh, groups and thinkers were themselves fringe at one point, uh, basically up until the 1970s. So I guess the question when it comes to the rise of the neoliberal order is like, what what were the political and economic conditions that allowed these ideas to move from fringe to center? It's a great question. I am fascinated by those moments when ideas thought to be consigned to the periphery forever break free from the periphery and suddenly become very important uh, in mainstream political discourse. In my study of American history and American politics in the 20th and 21st century, uh, those moments of escape uh, of ideas that have been on the periphery and their ability to enter the mainstream usually occur as a result of a major economic crisis. Uh, If we go back to the 1930s, It was the Great Depression, of course, Mm -hmm. that allowed New Deal thinkers and New Deal politicians to become mainstream. Uh, The uh, recession of the 1970s was not as extreme as the Great Crash of 1929 or the Great Depression, which still remains the greatest depression in American history. But the economic suffering was real. It was intense. and And a world that had been functioning rather well showed signs in economic terms of coming apart. And there were two major reasons for this. One, the United States suddenly had industrial competitors in the world. After World War II, it was the only industrial power with its industrial plant left standing. And so American capitalists had their way with the world uh, in, um, in, in a very powerful and meaningful way. And suddenly Japan and Germany, which the United States had done a lot to rebuild as economic rivals, mattered a great deal, and uh, nothing was more significant than the invasion of the American market by Toyotas and Mercedes Benzes Mm -hmm. uh, and Volkswagens and other such cars. The other big change in the 1970s was a a profound alteration between the global north and the global south. The global north had been able to um, set the commodity prices of resources located in the global south and that ceases to be the case in the 1970s. The clear, clearest case with that is petroleum. Anglo-American companies had controlled the extraction uh, of oil from the Middle East, how much was to flow, what price was to be set. They, they floated a lot. Uh, they kept the prices cheap. And then Saudi Arabia and later Iran and then other major oil producers in the Middle East began to say, uh, these are our resources and they are under our control we are going to set the volume and the price and the terms under which they 
enter global trade and the degree to which we're going to supply the industries of the global north and a, a, a global north that had thrived on cheap energy, the energy sources controlled by companies in the global north, that is no longer the case. And economies that have been functioning very well in the global north cease to function. The Keynesian toolkit, which had done so much to uh, manage uh, capitalism, uh, in the um, to keep it going and keep it relatively stable and to take the, the the public good into consideration, the toolkit that they have been using is no longer working. Something that wasn't supposed to happen happens. A new a new term is coined for it. Awkward term: stagflation. Uh, inflation is not supposed to be going up at the same time that uh, unemployment is going up. They're supposed to work in inverse ratio to each other. So something that the Keynesians could not handle occurred, a crisis that had no easy solution enveloped uh, all of the industrialized world and arguably most severely in the United States, which had been the economy most dependent on the cheap flow of petroleum and oil. And it is this moment of economic crisis that allows ideas that have been well formed, that have been well articulated, but have been marginal to gain a voice uh, that they hadn't previously had. Mm -hmm. the, um, the crisis for the neoliberal order comes in the wake of the Great Recession of 2008, 2009. Right. Uh, and this also allows ideas that had been on the, on the periphery to enter the mainstream uh, in, in a very profound way. So uh, I locate the origins of econ new economic orders uh, in these moments of mm -hmm. economic, economic crisis. So um, I, I want to stay on this kind of question of the development of neoliberalism for a second, because something else that is really interesting that you point out is that neoliberalism is not just a new type of conservatism. Uh, in fact, uh, something that you sort of um, uh, pull out in your book is that, you know, actually ideas from the new left and even, you know, anti-establishment figures like Ralph Nader, who we don't think of as conservatives at all, kind of come to help legitimize uh, the neoliberal order. So uh, I, I guess the question here is like, how exactly did values that we now associate with, you know, so-called progressive attitudes like cosmopolitanism and multiculturalism and, you know, personal freedom and personal liberation, um, how did they become central to the neoliberal order and, and how important are they to the neoliberal order? Well, this uh, is a controversial argument that I make. Yes. Uh, I'm, I'm committed to it. I think it'll be particularly provocative and controversial for your your listeners. And I've, 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 I've had some pushback on this, and uh, I expect to get more. And I, I, I say this as someone who was himself a member of the the new left in the, in the early 1970s. Um, the, the key idea here is uh, freedom. Mm-hmm. And there are different definitions that one can impart to freedom. Uh, and liberalism and the left share elements of a concept of freedom. They define it in different ways um, at, at different moments of time. Uh, but they have the ability to discuss these ideas and to share elements uh, of the same ideas with each other. So it, it shouldn't surprise us, I think, that there are moments of intersection and interaction. Uh, the, um, I should say, uh, uh, to further ex ex explicate this, that um, I don't see neoliberalism as many people who use that term see it, not entirely, uh, it, as, a, as an effort simply by elites to chain the masses and to undermine their 
democratic rights. That is certainly an element of neoliberalism to privilege property, especially capitalist property, above all other considerations. But in my view, if we're to understand the popularity of these ideas in the United States, we have to also see the ways in which neoliberal ideas were able to attach themselves to classical liberal ideas of the 18th and early 19th century of freedom uh, and emancipation. Mm -hmm. And those classical liberals um, uh, believed seriously in a kind of freedom that they didn't think was available. They saw a world crushed by monarchies, aristocracies, elites, um, ordinary people having no shot at anything. And they carried forward a message of emancipation, uh, overthrow aristocracies, overthrow monarchies, free the individual uh, from constraint, allow individual talent to flourish, allow people to work hard and be rewarded for it. Uh, That is not a narrow conception of freedom. That is a profoundly attractive uh, um, notion of freedom. And it's, it's deep in the thinking and mythology of American life associated with the American Revolution in the 18th century, which was part of this movement to overthrow aristocracy and monarchy and institute a society in which ordinary people had a chance for success that not would not otherwise be available to them. Now, this dream of classical liberalism uh, proved very effective at releasing the forces of capitalism uh, in the West in the United States and, and in Europe, and uh, and by the late nineteenth and early twentieth century, new voices began to appear, They're calling themselves socialist and then communist, saying, "Hey, wait a minute! The liberty that classical liberalism is offering is a counterfeit liberty. It's simply allowing capitalist capitalism to uh, to, to unleash itself and mm-hmm. privileging capitalist elites and uh, socialists and." Uh, communists took it upon themselves to redefine freedom in ways that benefited working people rather than elites. And this became a set of the most powerful and popular movements of the 20th century. But by the 1960s, and you're getting a very abbreviated (laughs) uh, uh, compressed uh, history here, but I have to do that for the purposes of this. And you can follow up with other questions if you wanted to. By the 1960s, um, the, uh, uh, oppression uh, of ordinary people is seen not just as the as the work of capitalist elites, but seen by many as the work of government states that had gotten too strong and 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 too powerful. Uh, and this was the case in the Soviet Union. Uh, obviously, it was a case uh, in China in which private property had been elim- eliminated, but uh, a new center of power had become so powerful that. Um, Individuals were not experiencing freedom in a meaningful way. And the new left undertakes to critique um, not just uh, uh, capitalist power, but but state power. And central to the ideology of the new left uh, was the notion that uh, the system, and this was a common term in the 1960s and 70s, the system which meant... uh, an alliance of private corporations with with state regulators were stripping people of their freedom. This becomes a a very popular way of thinking in the 1960s and 70s. And even the agencies of the New Deal set up to regulate capital 
in the eyes of many new leftists. These agencies have been captured by private interests, so they were no longer regulating oil or steel or other companies in the public interest. Uh, the regulators were serving the interests of corporations, were serving the interest of capital. Uh, and so there arose a movement to free the individual and his or her person from uh, all oppressors. And the state was figured as an oppressor in this. And the new left thus was became as, in many cases, as critical of the configuration of the American state of the 1960s and 70s as it had of private capital. Uh, and so the, 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 what emerged as part of the new left was an anti-statism mm -hmm. and a privilege, privileging of the individual and his or her consciousness and his or her freedom over all large structures, public and private, that might constrain unduly their freedom. And once you begin to enter that line of thinking, you begin to see how there can be an intersection between some of the ideas of the new left and part of what neoliberals were themselves arguing. That's not to say they merged. And I'm not making an argument that the new left sold out. It's not an argument about hypocrisy. It's not a it's not an argument of people pretending to be one thing and, and actually in their souls being another. It's more a story of how uh, critiques that emerge of established structures seem to be oppressive, how the voices emerging for this on the left in ways that uh, they emerged in ways that brought them in conversation to people on the other side of the political spectrum. And one of the very concrete ways in which this manifested itself was in the computer revolution and not just the computer revolution, not IBM, it's the personal computer. Uh, it's um, the, the dream of, of, of Apple, of Steve Jobs, of Stuart Brand, who, mm -hmm. who was a hippie, um, who wrote the, the Bible of hippiedom, one of the Bibles of hippiedom, um, uh, which the Whole Earth Catalog, published yeah. in the late 60s and early 70s, and contained in that was a, was a, a, a desire to, to free the individual in some very deep and profound way from all structures that were seen as um, serving as mechanisms of oppression. And once you enter that way of thinking, it, it becomes possible to cross over to uh, the other side or to be drawn to that or to or or to be developing ways of thinking that uh, are often unknowing in the ways that they are associating with each other. And so that is the way in which the new left begins in my own thinking and in my own book to contribute to the development and ultimate triumph of neoliberal thinking. So you mentioned the computer revolution, and I think that brings us pretty nicely to the Clinton years, which, of course, earlier you sort of alluded to as kind of the height of the neoliberal order, even though obviously we're very used to thinking of like Ronald Reagan as the avatar of American neoliberalism. But I want to ask you about the Clinton years because... Um, I think it kind of gets at this interesting tension that you've been talking about where, you know, on the one hand, um, you can, on the one hand, people who are left of center or who, you know, are, are identified with the left or progressive or Democrats or whatever can kind of, um, sort of champion these notions of personal freedom and, you know, liberation, uh, and, and, uh, be very different from Republicans and conservatives in kind of a cultural way. And we see that a lot in the nineties, right? Like we, 
people think about the 90s as a time of like intense like division and fractious fractiousness between the Republicans and the Democrats and intense uh, political polarization. But at the same time, as you obviously point out, um, the the neoliberal the neoliberal order was sort of consolidated during this period. So what exactly was going on during the Clinton years that consolidated the neoliberal order? Well, part of it was the um, the the computer revolution and the techno utopianism that surrounded the mm-hmm. computer revolution. Uh, the 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 Clintonites and the and the people around them were right to discern that they were in the presence of a technological innovation, perhaps greater than any, certainly since the steam engine. And in some respects, if we think about knowledge, since the invention of the printing press half a millennium before, they, they, the world in which we live and inhabit today is the product of a technological revolution that happens very rarely, um, once every 200 years, once every four or 500 years. And they grasped that and they understood very early that they were in the midst of something very powerful and very transformative. And the computer revolution meant many things, but part of it, part of what it meant is that so much data would be generated, so much um, knowledge about markets would be available instantaneously everywhere in the world with the push of a button or uh, something, a key on a, on, a, on a keyboard, that what had uh, required government intervention before was no longer necessary. Mm-hmm. Uh, before, markets were imperfect and governments had to intervene because people who were active in markets didn't have perfect information. Well, now informa- uh, a perfect information was available and it was available all the time. And if you took that to one logical conclusion, it meant that you could eliminate risk. And if you could eliminate risk, what need for government would there be? Because government was there to correct mistakes about evaluating risk, understanding that every boom in a capitalist cycle would be followed by a bust. Well, if you had perfect information, so the theory went, you would you would no longer um, need government to intervene in the public interest. And, and this informs what I consider to be one of the most extraordinary pieces of legislation passed by Democrats in the 20th century. And that's the telecommunications reform bill of 1996, Mm -hmm. which basically empowers the internet revolution to be in all, for all intents and purposes, free of any form of serious public regulation whatsoever. And it's important uh, for us to recognize as Americans that the United States had a rich tradition of public regulation of media defined as utilities, not newspapers, but media that, that I'm thinking of the telephone, I'm thinking of the radio, I'm thinking of television. Uh, these were not simply instruments of expression, of communication. They were that. They were incredibly powerful instruments of communication that could only work if they came to be congealed in very large and powerful corporations. And because these the information was seen as so vital to a democracy, its expression had to be regulated in some way, or the institutions that were providing this uh, and uh, providing this infrastructural system for the spread of this media, they had to be regulated uh, in some way. And 
that is the history of uh, media regulation in the 20th century, which the Clintonites have available to them in the 1990s. It's part of their heritage. It's part of Franklin Roosevelt's Democratic Party. It's part of the New Deal. It's deep into the, in the New Deal. There's also something called the Fairness Doctrine, which was put in place in the late 1940s, which said if television or radio put one view across that was controversial in terms of politics, they had to give equal time to the other side. This is gotten rid of by Reagan in the 1980s. It's very significant that Clinton and his and his administration, when they come into office, make no effort to restore it. Mm-hmm. And when it comes time to uh, having a, a bill that is adequate to the challenge of this technological revolution, they abandon the heritage, which had been so central to uh, the uh, Democratic Party for most of the previous century. And part of it is the techno-utopianism, and the other part of it is the fall of communism and the fall of the Soviet Union, a spectacular collapse that no one saw coming. And if anyone of my age tells you otherwise, they're, they're not telling you the truth. Uh, the, uh, even if we grant that the Soviet Union was an ailing empire in the late 80s and early 90s, Empires don't go out of business by dismantling themselves in two years. Uh, you think of the Austro-Hungarian Empire or the, or the Ottoman Empire and how, or the Spanish Empire or how slow their declines were. Empires make, make it, the U.S. may be an empire in decline now, and it's making, effort, it's making every effort, as most empires do, to cling to whatever it has. And the dismantling of um, the uh, Soviet Union by Gorbachev between 1989 and 1991 was extraordinary. Uh, and we can talk more about that if you wish, but the, uh, it, it, uh, it did two things. Uh, first, uh, it opened the entire world to capitalist penetration in ways that the world had not been open to capitalist penetration since prior to the first world war, you know, more than 75 years before. And suddenly all these markets and countries that have been off limits to capitalist development were suddenly fair game uh, for capitalist expansion. And this also fed a a sense of hubris that the West had won, that liberal capitalism had won, that had no serious rival in the world, that its greatest antagonist had been defeated. And it was was the way of the world. Uh, I think Fukuyama, even though I disagree with a lot of his analysis um, in his famous book of the or, or, or early 90s, the end of history and the last man, he said with the passing of communism, the last universal alternative to liberal capitalism passed from the world. And we should not underestimate the significance of that moment in terms of its ideological implications. And for the left, it, I think, instituted a crisis uh, regarding a Marxist analysis because the most... Um, ambitious effort to establish socialism um, had failed and had failed in a spectacular fashion. And what if you're a leftist in the 1990s, what are you to do exactly? And, and I don't think we, and who's the we here, uh, we as activists, we as scholars, um, I don't think we have adequately... Uh, reckoned with the impact of that collapse and the disappearance of communism from the world uh, and as a, as a live historical possibility. 
if you're in that situation, so I'm, I'm thinking out loud with you now, and you may have other ideas uh, 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 about this, but if, if, what do you do? Well, this is also a period when those who thought of themselves as being on the left, not knowing how to reorganize the economy on a socialist foundation, began to sit, to define their leftism in alternative terms. Right. And that is in terms of liberation movements for, for women, uh, for, uh, African-Americans and, and people of color for gays. Uh, and the 90s becomes a time of a rich development of cosmopolitan thinking. One of the points I make in the book is that this cosmopolitan thinking is something that neo a, a globalized neoliberal world is very comfortable with. Mm -hmm. this, is, this is not to, to say that people who were pursuing liberation on the left were themselves neoliberals, but it, it afforded a kind of consonance, a convergence. Mm -hmm. Uh, that um, uh, I think furthered le the legitimacy of neoliberal ideas, which themselves had a cosmopolitan right. component to it. So that's the 1990s. Yes, yeah. <laughs> uh, definitely a lot there. I'm now realizing that that could be its own talk. So maybe <laughs> we'll have you back in the future to just focus on the 1990s. <laughs> Uh, but since we since, you know, we don't have that much longer with you, um, I do want to now jump to kind of the end of neoliberalism. Right. Because that, I think, is the other sort of maybe contentious part about your book. Um, I don't know if everybody would agree that, you know, neoliberalism is in its sort of waning days, although I just want to say I, I think you make a compelling case. But uh, because we've talked already about the kind of political and economic shocks that brought about the end of the New Deal order, and you had started alluding to some of the factors that you think have pre, uh, uh, precipitated the fall of neoliberalism. Uh, maybe talk a little bit more about that. Um, you know, you had mentioned the Great Recession, of course. Um, I don't think that anyone could deny that that was a huge shock to uh, the neoliberal order. Uh, but, but I believe in your book, you, you kind of identify cracks first starting to form during the George W. Bush administration. Uh, so maybe say a little bit more about, um, uh, uh, you know, when the end of neoliberalism sort of began and uh, what what are exactly the factors that are bringing about this decline? Well, I, I think the there there are always uh, cracks in a yes. political order. Uh, political orders are complex formations. They bring together institutions, constituencies that on some key issues see eyes, eye to eye, but on other issues they don't. And so there are always tension points and there are always points where things can diverge. Uh, the uh, George Bush, I think, set the stage uh, for the crisis of neoliberalism in, in two ways. Uh, he pursued uh, a cheap money housing policy, which actually in his own mind was meant to help minority homeownership in the United States. Uh, that could, because he was not willing to appropriate actual money for this, that could only be done by um, extending debt and extending mortgages to people who had previously been denied mortgages by banks, uh, setting them up for failure in a way. And again, this could happen because of the utopianism surrounding the technological revolution. We are, we are so good about spreading debt throughout the entire world, hiding it as small parts of much bigger packages of assets that even if some housing districts go bust, it's not really going to matter that much. And, 
Uh, this is the story of the derivatives. Now, I think, is not the time to go into that very deeply, but I think uh, listeners will understand mm -hmm. the magnitude and, and the driving force of the housing crisis yes. uh, and a set of neoliberal policies really facilitated a belief that this kind of easy money set of mortgage schemes could solve the problem of racial inequality in the United States. And that becomes the trigger for the financial crisis. I also talk extensively in the book about uh, how uh, Bush tried to reconstruct Iraq on a neoliberal foundation. Uh, he threw away the plans that the United States had used to reconstruct Germany and Japan after World War II, which of course involved, if you go to reconstruct a country, you need a government to do that, someone's mm -hmm. government to do that. He throws that away and, and basically hands the entire job of reconstruction to private corporations, most of them American-based, mm -hmm. uh, saying, you can handle this. And he also dismantles the entire, through his, his agents in Iraq, dismantles the entire infrastructure of the economy in Iraq, a kind of shock therapy, which neoliberals believe was the only way to deal with bloated states that had not done their jobs in terms of economic development. Uh, this matters because uh, this neoliberal experiment is, is, is fanciful, fanciful, it's ill-conceived, it's brutal on the Iraqis. It leads to civil war within Iraq and explodes Bush's popularity and delegitimize. And that the combination of that and the housing crisis leading to the Great Recession uh, uh, persuade a lot of Americans to think more seriously about the kind of political economy that they had committed to through their political leadership. And in the midst of a crisis, there's first trauma and inaction. Uh, so protest develops slowly. But over the decade of the 20 teens, the protests are quite extraordinary, beginning with the Tea Party on the right, um, Occupy Wall Street, 2011 on the left, Black Lives Matter in 2014, and then the reemergence of uh, socialism on the left and a powerful ethno-nationalist protectionism in the form of Donald Trump on the right. Mm -hmm. uh, and the 2016 election is the shock. The, the two most powerful and important people in that election, Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders, were unimaginable as significant political figures in the heyday of, of neoliberalism. And this is when I decided to write the book. I said something really big is going on here and mm -hmm. I've got to try and, and understand it. And I, I began to see it in terms of the breakup of, 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 of an order. Uh, and I think I would say subsequent events um, are, are bearing me out in that regard. And here I think it's crucial to distinguish between the survival of neoliberal ideas and, mm -hmm. and the survival of a neoliberal order, which are, right. are not the same thing. The neoliberal order compels all players in politics to abide by a certain set of beliefs and rules. And that clearly is not the case today. And just to illustrate how much things have changed since the heyday of the neoliberal order, I sometimes talk about the uh, four freedoms. And these are not the four freedoms of Roosevelt in 1941, which had a strong social democratic component. These are the four capitalist freedoms, mm -hmm. and and they uh, which which neoliberalism in, internalized and sought to universalize, and they are first uh, uh, freedom of trade uh, across all borders, secondly free movement of people, mm -hmm. 
Thirdly, free movement of information. And fourthly, free movement of capital. Yeah. I'd say over the last five or six years, each of those freedoms is under serious assault. That doesn't mean socialism is coming. <laughs> uh, but it does mean that the orthodoxy of the neo and the and the power of neoliberal thinking has suffered reversals. Mm-hmm. Uh, protectionism is is a legitimate policy on both the right and the left now in ways it was not before 2016. I don't need to say much about the free movement of people except that borders are going up everywhere mm-hmm. uh, in in the world. Uh, the tech, the techno utopianism of the digital revolution, uh, that that bubble of belief has been popped. We can no longer assume that we will inhabit a single globalized digital world. We may be entering a, an era of a digital cold war where China will have its own internet system, Russia will have its own, Turkey would like its own, Europe and the United States will have its own. Imagine a world in which there are four distinct digital systems for communicating, each gated, each allowing entrance only to those people who have the right credentials. That is very different from the the neoliberal dream or right. Thomas, Fried- Thomas Friedman's dream of a world is flat and anyone can go anywhere at any time of the day or night. And I think with regard to Ukraine and Russia now, we can see quite uh, extraordinary controls on capital being imposed, uh, both on Russian assets in the West, but also in terms of uh, regulations governing corporations' freedom to go into Russia and 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 do business there, a rethinking of uh, supply chains, uh, governments beginning to think now, well, uh, we can't really let capital do exactly what it wants to do because they may try and reestablish these long supply chains that with a country that we might be at war with in mm-hmm. five or ten years or even two years from now. I mean, the, you know, the Taiwan issue hangs all over this. So governments begin to say, we have to direct the economy. We need essential products produced either internal to the country or close to home and and allies that we can trust. And so national security begins to trump the free movement of capital Mm -hmm. in terms of the design of political economy. Uh, The amount of thinking going on on this issue in the world right now, it's not a lot of it's not visible yet, but it's going on by governments saying, what are what are the essential resources that we need? How do we assure that they will continue to flow into our country if if we can't produce them internally and corporations making all kinds of calculations about whether they have a future Mm -hmm. in China? And if they don't have a future in China, where are they going to build their facilities uh, what is the role of government in restructuring a global political economy? Right. And I think if we think in these terms, we can begin to think the degree to which I think anyway, we are moving away from the heyday of 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 the neoliberal order. Mm-hmm. Well, so, of course, I have to, to wrap up on the question of what comes next. Right. And um, <laughs> just to you know build off of what you've been talking about, I think often when people sort of invoke the end of neoliberalism, the implication is that something better or at least something new is like right around the corner. Um, and, and obviously, as, as you've just pointed out, like and you say in your book, like we could be living in kind of the detritus or the wreckage of the collapsing neoliberal order for quite a long time. So, you know, one question for you, obviously, is do you see signs of new political orders forming and like, what are those? Um, And then I I guess just for my part, um, I, you know, 
when we're when we're thinking about the end of the New Deal order, as as you know, you had you had spoken about earlier, like the New Deal order was defined by kind of this compromise between capital and labor, right? And the neoliberal order is very different insofar as, you know, obviously I'm I'm like summarizing a lot here, but it really represents to a great degree the kind of triumph of capital over labor and the subsequent, you know, massive upward transfer of wealth in a way. So like this is Jacobin. So of course, I have to ask you the question about class power. Like it, it stands to reason that capitalists would be very invested in preserving the neoliberal order where that might not have existed for the New Deal order. So maybe like a simple way of asking the question is, do you think that capital can revive the New Deal order? I'm sorry, the, the neoliberal order. Yes, um, but uh, there's no guarantee that that they'll be able to to do so. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the world right now is a very scary place for them. I mm-hmm. think also the kind of a- asset inflation that has been going on for 30 or 40 years now, the financialization of the uh, economy, uh, which has a lot to do with the upward drift of money and profits and wealth that you referred to a moment ago. There are signs now that that bubble may be popping. Uh, so I, I now, if you ask me, are they going to do everything to retain their wealth and retain their their privilege? Absolutely, um, but it's 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 not clear that they are going to be able to to to, to do that. Uh, and uh, I think part of the lesson of the New Deal order is that there are circumstances in the world that will incline capital to compromise in ways that they may not wish to, but nevertheless feel compelled to as the least worst of the alternatives Mm -hmm. facing them. And uh, one of the questions now is what uh, will strike fear in the, in the hearts of capital, what will incline them to compromise? Uh, Of course, you know, one important um, uh, uh, force is, the reemergence of a labor movement. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, we're seeing signs of that. It's it's not to the point now where it, it can command the heights, uh, but the labor revolt of the 1930s began from very modest beginnings. Um, I was encouraged by the first six months of the Biden administration uh, because the left and the center of the Democratic Party were in a kind of dialogue uh, that I thought was was very productive. And you could see in that dialogue the outlines of a progressive political order taking shape, one that would put the Green New Deal at its center and also put the kinds of controls on capital that have not been there for uh, a couple generations. Uh, so I, I, the... Um, there are forces have been unleashed uh, that capital is not going to uh, be able easily to control. Uh, and uh, I know Naomi Klein has uh, made very effective arguments about uh, shock capitalism and the way in which capitalists can thrive on disasters. Mm-hmm. I've just reviewed Thomas Piketty's new book, which is an optimistic argument for uh, equality mm-hmm. uh, and the possibility of, of, of achieving it in the 21st century. Uh, 
I think it's too optimistic because he overlooks what he outlined so brilliantly in his first book, Capital in the 21st Century. And these, one of the central points of that book was that the First and Second World Wars uh, caused a destructiveness, uh, a kind of catastrophe, which capital and the wealthy could not control. Uh, and out of that disaster came, in his telling, uh, kind of a remarkable advance for social democratic politics, left, left liberal politics, commanding the heights for a period from the 1940s to the 1970s. Obviously, we don't want a catastrophe on the scale of World War I and World War II to envelop our lives again, although the climate crisis and the pandemic have forced us to compel, have compelled us to think that it's not impossible that something of that sort may occur. My point, however, here is that economic crises can develop to the, to the point where uh, capitalists can't control the outcome. Right. Uh, and, uh, and so I, I don't see this moment, uh, as a moment in which capitalism in the, in the driver's seat, um, managing things in their interest. If you're asking me, could that be the outcome of the crisis through which we're living? Could, uh, a neoliberal order or a, an order, deeply privileging capital reemerge by the end of the 2020s in the United States and the world? The answer is, is yes, that is a possibility, but it's only one of several possibilities. And I think we are in a moment of inflection. We are in a moment of transition uh, and we don't really know what the shape of the world is going to be in five or 10 years. Uh, And that means that uh, not only should we not presume that capital is going to triumph, uh, but we should also think that this is a moment when those who have other ideas for reorganizing the economy, for reorganizing politics, to step up and fight for what they believe in. I think that's pretty much the perfect note to wrap up on. So uh, again, Gary Gerstle's new book is The Rise and Fall of the Neoliberal Order, America and the World in the Free Market Era. We will link that in the description box below. Uh, Professor Gerstle, you've been very generous with your time. Thank you so much. It was great to see you. Thank you for having me. (laughs) 